Wow, I'm so excited that you've all come to join us here this morning. Uh, how many of you brought a, like a favorite person with you that is not normally with you? <laughs> Somebody said, oh, you put your hand down. You have your favorite person with you, but they're normally here. Okay, uh, we're, the last three weeks we've been going through Luke chapter 24. Let me tell you what the page number is so you can take that bench Bible out and you can find it. Page 858, 858, if you take that bench Bible out and flip it open, uh, it's near the back. 858. And uh, Luke chapter 24, you'll see the big word Luke at the top and the big word number 24. But we've been, the last three weeks, we've been traveling through this section of the Bible, Luke 24, and uh, we've been calling it our Easter road trip. How many of you like going on road trips? How many of you on a road trip right now? You're actually away from your regular home, okay? Thank you for joining us on your road trip. That's awesome. How many of you are going on a road trip later this week? Anyone? Anyone going on a road trip later this week? Okay, it's good. Um, you know, when all of you are about to get into the vehicle, and uh, if there's a few of you, and uh, let's say it's the car or the minivan or whatever, but you're all going to get into, and let's say you have this thought in your mind, you're not the driver, but you want to sit next to the driver, right? You want to sit next to the driver, and why you want to sit next to the driver is you like the driver, also, you like the view in the front seat, and you like uh, to be in charge of the stereo, and you like to be the one who uh, tells the driver whether the GPS is right or not, <laughs> and you also want to control the temperature in the vehicle. What's that phrase that you say when you want all that? You say, I call shotgun. I call shotgun, okay? I, call, I don't know what it is in other countries, but here in North America, where we used to have stagecoaches and someone used to ride shotgun, we say, I call shotgun. I want that position right next to the driver. I want to be as close to them as possible. I call shotgun. I want to be right in the action. And I think for us, it's a metaphor of, for how excited uh, people were, the early followers of Jesus became once they realized the truth of the resurrection. They wanted to be on this journey with Jesus. They wanted to go on whatever um, adventure Jesus was going to call them to. They wanted to be right up close to the action. They, wa- they were calling shotgun. Um, let me just read to you out of Luke 24, 1 to 11. And uh, oh, I'll just read it from the screen here. Can we pull it up there? Okay, I'll read it from there. Okay, on the first day of the week... Very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. And in their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? He's not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee? The Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. But they did not believe the women because their words seem to them like nonsense. Sometimes I read the Bible and I'm amazed by all the details that the authors included in the stories that 
end up making them look bad. Like this one, that very last work. It's that they did not believe the women. Now, I want you to imagine if you were one of the four uh, authors of the gospel accounts that we have, the stories about Jesus. We have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in your Bible. And um, can you imagine writing these accounts? It was like, okay, we didn't believe the women. And they were right. (laughs) You know, that's a little embarrassing, right? The thing is, the Gospels are full of these kind of moments. It's not just this one, but they are full. It is embarrassment upon embarrassment. If you were one of the writers of the Gospel, especially when it comes to the men, the the followers of Jesus who were closest around him, it is full of embarrassment. Um, The picture you get of the, the disciples, the followers of Jesus, those first 12, is not really complimentary. They're pictured as slow learners, cowardly, whiners, arrogant, petty, disbelieving, stubborn, lazy, clueless, judgmental, undisciplined, lacking in compassion, and very, 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 very selfish. And they wrote these stories. Now, I want you to think for a second. If you're going to make up a story where you are one of the main characters, wouldn't you spin it a bit? Wouldn't you change some of the details to make yourself look better? I mean, I don't know. When I get around with other guys, sometimes when we're making up stories, we look better, right? I mean, we exaggerate maybe a little bit. Maybe we're not totally fabricating the stories, but, but if we're telling a story where we're the central character, there's a tendency. I've noticed it. We say things like, well, those guys weren't having any luck, but I knew where the fish were. We say, nobody knows Star Wars trivia like I do. Even though his Chevy was stuck in the mud, I was pretty confident that my F-150 would make it through. Or I knew the flames weren't going to get out of the first round. What, what do you, what's the common vibe? It's strength, confidence, and being right. Now, the way these stories are told, it's like... Who are these guys? Why would they write? If they're making this story up, think about that for a second. Why would they make it up this way? In fact, I think it's one of the many, many, many reasons why uh, I believe the resurrection accounts that are found in the Gospels is because you wouldn't make up the story this way. I mean, one of the ones that classically people often point to, they say that at that point in time to to choose the the initial witnesses of the resurrection to be the women amongst the followers was actually not a really stellar case for the resurrection because at that time, people had a lower view of a woman's ability to testify to the truth. I'm not making this up, and I'm not saying this out of bias. This is not what I believe. This is what they believed back then. So if you were going to make up a story, you would say, well, these very distinguished pillars of our community found out that the resurrection was true and they were the first witnesses and because they're trustworthy. But this is not what happened. To me, it doesn't sound like a made-up story. It sounds like they just reported the facts. No matter how embarrassing the facts were and especially the facts that were about themselves, especially the facts that made them look bad, I often think about the men who had to write these stories. It's not like they were... um, 
Like, I guess you could have an argument and say, well, maybe they were just wimpy men and thought low of themselves, sort of henpecked into, into uh, subservience or something like that. But I don't believe that about them. But I do have a thought in my head. Do you, how many of you remember the Red Green Show? How many of you remember the man's prayer? <laughs> I'm a man. Say it with me. I'm a man. I can change if I have to, I guess. Okay, there we go. <laughs> That's what they do. They go to their little lodge at the, end of the, at the end of the episode and they always say the man's prayer. I'm a man. I can change if I have to, I guess. But these guys, the rest of the story doesn't portray them as people that were just had a low view of themselves. They go on to die for this faith. Most of them were crucified. Uh, some of them were, died other ways. Uh, they went to the far ends of the globe. They left their locale of Judea, their homeland they knew, and they went all the way to uh, India. Thomas went to India. Andrew supposedly went all the way to Germany. Different ones went to different places. They... There's something about this story that, to me, rings very, very true. It's like that song we just were singing I will not boast in anything, no gifts, no power, no wisdom, but I will boast in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. It seems like as they wrote the stories about their own failures, they were writing out of a totally different perspective on how they saw their lives. They weren't trying to bolster their own self-image or their own street cred. They were at that point going, you know what? My foolishness, my failure... My unbelieving heart, it's all, it all gives greater and greater glory to who Jesus is because he found me, he rescued me, he changed me. He's the hero of the story and not me. See, they found something in Jesus through his death and resurrection that was so exciting that it overshadowed their shame and embarrassment and made, them, uh, made their hearts on fire to take this to the world. Now, we spent the last couple of weeks reading the next chunk of verses in, in, in um, Luke chapter 24, and that's the story of Emmaus, the Emmaus Road. So we've, we've already spent a couple of weeks there. Let me just sum it up really quickly. There's the same dynamic at work in the lives of these two guys who sort of break off from the, the group in Jerusalem and, and walk away in discouragement. They're totally bummed out because Jesus has died. They don't know what's going on. They're disillusioned, and Jesus himself... The resurrected Christ, Jesus, finds them on this road. And uh, when he's done explaining the scriptures and revealing himself to him, they are changed men. They run back to Jerusalem late at night to join the other followers of Jesus. They're excited. They're energized. And I think this is a bit of the pattern that God wants for every human heart. Every discouraged heart, every disillusioned heart, every doubting heart. For, for he wants to intersect your story. He wants to intersect my story. And when he intersects it, he wants to change the game. He wants to change how we see. He wants to fill us with hope, with joy, with purpose, with meaning. That we're energized. Uh, we're ready and enthused about what God is doing in the world. And it's all centered around Jesus. So then this takes us to the last chunk. Luke chapter 24, verse 36. We'll start reading there. It says, while they were still talking about this, okay, what they were talking about was the fact that Jesus had appeared to these two guys and also to Peter, or Cephas as it says in the scriptures, but that's a name for Peter. So those, those guys are all coming back together and they're saying, hey, I saw Jesus and Peter saw Jesus and whoa, what's going on here? 
And while they're still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. I suppose if you're going to sneak up on people, you should say peace be with you afterwards, right? Right? So just try this today, hide in a closet and go boo, and then say peace be with you. That would make it extra fun. Okay, but Jesus does this. He stands among them, he says, after they're startled, that's what it says in verse 37, he says, peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. And he said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts rise in your minds? So here's the thing. The first, those followers of Jesus who walked with him all those days, when they first were presented with the reality of resurrection, they were skeptics. They were skeptics. It says there was doubts that had arisen in their minds. And so Jesus... um, Jesus helps them with a few proofs that he's alive. But think about this. If you grew up going to church, you maybe heard around Easter time that there was like this one disciple. Don't be a doubting Thomas. But the reality was Thomas, yes, he doubted. He would only believe if he could see the nail prints in, the, in, in, his, in his hands and in, in, his, in his feet and the spear thrust in his side. He would, he would only believe that way. But you know what? Peter, Thomas was not the only one. Peter was doubtful and James, the brother of Jesus, was doubtful. Of course, I understand that, right? If my brother told me he was the Messiah, I would be doubtful, right? That's another one of those proofs, right? You're like, how much proof would you need to believe your brother's the Messiah? I would need an overwhelming amount of proof. And I've got five brothers, and I can't think of any of them that is Messiah-like, to be honest. Not even remotely. Anyhow, but James comes to believe, and then... um. Paul comes to believe, or he was Saul, remember? He's, he is zealous that he believes this is some sort of cult that needs to be crushed. And he uses the might and the, and the authority of the, the ruling uh, religious people of the, time, of the time to carry out uh, imprisonment and, and also the death of many of these Christians. How much proof does he need to be convinced? I mean, he's the, he's the hero of the opposition, And yet, he comes to become one of the greatest followers of Christ, sold out for God. So it says, they've got some doubts. Jesus says, look at my hands and my feet, it is myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. And when he had said this, he showed, so they didn't just have an apparition. Jesus didn't just appear like a shape or a shadow. He was actually touchable, flesh and bones. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. Now hear this. And while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, do you have anything to eat? Now let's pause for a second. You ever have an amazing fact come across your way, but it's so amazing you don't want to believe it? Because if it's true, it will just change everything. Right? You get that phone call. You've won a million dollars, but it sounds sort of like a computer-generated voice, and you're not totally sure if you should trust it. So you're just withholding a little bit. You're just disbelieving a little bit. But if it was true, what if it was true? This is, I think this is a good reason to hold off belief. We often, we often do this when something seems too good to be true, because if it was true, the joy that would result. If it was true, the change that would happen, but they still did not believe, because sometimes you just don't want to hope. 
because it would be so much easier not to hope than to actually hope and then find out that hope is false. I mean, so sometimes not believing it almost feels like, I just don't want to jinx it. <laughs> just in case it's not, it's not real. So while they did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, do you have anything to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish. That sounds like bachelors hanging out together, right? <laughs> it's like, oh, we got something in the fridge. I'm not sure what it is. I'm not sure how old it is. See if you can get it down. They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it, and he ate it in their presence. And he said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Of course, the Old Testament is full of references towards Jesus and what he's the Messiah and what he's going to be like. So he's, it says he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. And this is something that's already happened with the two on the road to Emmaus, but he's doing that with, with these guys, the 11 as well. And he told them, this is what is written. So he's going to sum up a lot of the Old Testament prophecies in this statement. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. So there's several big words in there. Messiah, that was the long-promised one who would deliver Israel. A lot of people thought that was going to be a military deliverance, throw off the shackles of Rome and be our own nation again, have autonomy. Uh, Jesus was quite surprising in that way in that his kingdom was not going to be of this world, but he was going to set up a kingdom that was uh, a spiritual kingdom. So the Messiah will suffer. Now that was all through the Old Testament, but a lot of people didn't expect that either. But again, he's saying that is what the Bible has said. And repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations. So let's, talk, let's tackle repentance, forgiveness, and sins, those three words. The problem for every human being is the problem of sin. I, I mean, if you read the Bible, that's basically the presenting problem. And what is sin? Well, helpful for me, and I learned this when I was a little kid, was sin has the big letter I in the middle, right? Sin is all about me. It's selfishness. And it comes out in a multitude of different ways. You can be selfish through lots of different ways. But it really comes back to, I'm in charge. It's all about me. I'm making my world all about me. Selfishness. And uh, it's pretty epidemic. Uh, And the Bible uses lots of images to explain human sin. Uh, Let me give you three of them. There's lots more. Um, First one's in Isaiah 53, 6. The the picture of wayward sheep. It says, we all like sheep. Isaiah 53, 6. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us have turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So we're like wayward sheep. I can imagine, he's telling this to mostly an agricultural audience, which most of the world was at that point. So I can imagine shepherds and farmers going, oh yeah, I hate when that happens. You got that one sheep, all the other sheep follow. You get them into the pen and you're like, where's that one sheep? I hate when that happens. We're like that? We're like that to God? We just go on our own path? We don't follow his path? Okay. I could see that being frustrating. But then, here's another metaphor. I mean, again, these, there's so many metaphors. I just picked three, but there's, there's so many metaphors you could use. Jeremiah 3.20 says this. 
But like a woman unfaithful to her husband, so you, Israel, have been unfaithful to me, declares the Lord. So here's the picture of an unfaithful spouse. Now, in this case, it's using woman, but, you know, it's the same. It's the reality is true for men or women. I can imagine those same farmers are going, well, the sheep thing is annoying, but this thing, well, this is really, you know, I don't even want to comment about this. This is really serious. This is talking about a betrayal. This is talking about someone who's supposed to be faithful and isn't faithful. And surely there would be people in the audience as, as they're, they're hearing these words, well, Jeremiah said them in the Old Testament, who probably would think about how maybe as a people group we are betrayers, but also saying, oh, there's some of that in me too. There's a tendency in me or, or I know my track record. Let me give you the last one. Romans 7.23, it says, But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind, and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. So here's a, this is an extra aspect. It's not just what we've done. Not just that we've been wayward sheep or that we've been to God like an unfaithful spouse. It's that there is something at work within us. There is a natural tendency within us towards sin. It's not just that we've done sin. It's that there's a power at work in us that keeps on generating sinful actions. The Bible calls it our sin nature at work within us. So it's not just that sin is act. Sin is a power. And it's a pervasive power that makes us prisoners. It makes us captives. So Isaiah 59, 2 tells us the results of our sin. It says, but your iniquities have separated you from your God and your sins have, fitten, has, your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. The result of sin in our life is separation from God. So people go their own ways like sheep. People are unfaithful to him. Uh, they don't recognize him. They don't honor him. They don't thank him. They don't allow him to direct their lives. And when people choose to ignore or reject him, he actually allows that decision to stand. Isn't that interesting? God doesn't override that. I've thought about this lots. I thought, God, what? I am so rebellious in my heart. I am so um, prone towards sin. Why don't you just override it? Can I pray a prayer so that that will all cease? That will be done? I'll never have to deal with that again? Can I get fixed? I know I'm broken. Can I get fixed so that I never, ever go the way of sin and selfishness again? But he doesn't override our free will. In fact, he allows us to make decisions that are eternal decisions. God invites us. He, he demonstrates his love for us on the cross. He, he makes it very clear. It's like if it was a poker game, he puts his cards down first. He makes it really clear. He lays them on the table. This is where I'm at. I love you. I want relationship with you. I want you to be my son or my daughter. And then this enormous freedom is given to us to say no. Or to turn away and ignore. Or to say yes 
It's astounding to me. It's just such an, an enormous thing to get your head around the free will that God has given us to live in and the consequences of that choice and where they lead. So we've got the sin problem. But it's not all, we're not going to talk all about problem today, obviously. We've got the sin problem, but there's also a prescription for the problem, and that prescription is Jesus. So remember, we talked about the sheep, the wayward spouse, and the captives, right? Let's go through it again. John 10, 15. Here's the prescription. It says, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. What's the answer for the wayward person who's gone their own way and, God's, and not God's way? It's Jesus laying his life down for them or laying his life down for us. How about this one? Ephesians 5, 25. It says, husbands love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. What's the answer for the, the, the wayward spouse? It's Jesus again giving his life for, that, for the one who has not been faithful. How about the last one? Matthew 20, 28. It says, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. What's the problem for that, re- that power within us that keeps generating sinful action? It's Christ giving his life for many. He comes to rescue the captives, even those who are captive to their own sinful tendencies. And to break that power in our lives so that that is not, no longer our master. Often view like the, your life as a, as, a, as, a, as a throne room, right? And you sit on that throne and you direct the activities and then you realize Christ has come. A greater king has come than me. And I either give him the throne or I stubbornly sit there in my sin thinking I'm in charge but sin has really got me shackled. I mean, it's like I'm chained to that throne. Sin is my master. But he comes to break the power of that sin. His old hymn, he breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. The answer to all of these things is Jesus laying his life down for us. The answer for the wayward sheep, the cheating spouse, and the captive in bondage is the same. God gave us Jesus. Jesus embraced his role as our suffering substitute. He took our place. Now, what's our response? What's our position? How do we respond to this? Well, number one of those words that was in our passage was the word repentance. Repentance is means turn around. Turn around. Agree with God about our sin condition. We have sinned in action and we tend towards sin. That's our nature. So agree with God about that. But then turn away from sin towards God. It's a change of thought. It's a change of action. It's a change of direction. It's a change of what we value and what we treasure and what we trust in. It's a real transformation. It's a 180. Just like those guys on the road to Emmaus were walking away from the action in Jerusalem, from what God was going to do in Jerusalem. They were discouraged. They were, they were really disillusioned. Jesus intercepts them, talks to them, and opens the scriptures to them, breaks bread with them. They suddenly realize it's him, and then they're running back to Jerusalem. What was it? A 180. How compassionate is that? It's like, whoa, whoa there's two guys breaking off from the pack. 
They're not going to do well. They're both totally bummed out. They're totally disagreeing. And I am going to reveal myself to the disciples. I guess I'm walking to Emmaus. We're going to do a little bit of a road trip. So these guys can be part of the action. So these guys can experience the resurrection. So they can know about the hope and the purpose. And know that the way to God is now open. You could just say, eh, leave them in Emmaus. Jesus went out of his way for two. The Bible says he even goes out of his way for one. Uses the metaphor of the sheep again. He leaves the 99 and he goes and finds the one. He goes to find you. And he goes to find me. And so our response is we repent. We say, I, I don't want sin to be my master anymore. I don't want to be uh, under that power. I want to be under the power of God. I want God to begin to bring a transformation into my life, changing me from the inside out. I want to be his son or his daughter. That's a possibility now. I want to serve him. I want to live for him. And so the product of all this uh, of the repentance is a forgiven and reconciled people who are commissioned to represent him in the world. Let me go back to our passage real quick so you can see some of that. It says, Repentance and forgiveness for sins will be preached in his name to all the nations beginning at Jerusalem, and you are witnesses of these things. You are witnesses of these things. You have a role to play partnering with God to take this story wherever, to the nations. You are you're joining the family business, right? I prayed, this was really helpful to me just to think of myself as joining God's family business. This week in my prayer preparation, I kept saying, Father, I'm your son. I'm a witness. Help me on Sunday to honor you as my father to trust you as my father, to partner with you as my father. That was very relaxing. Sometimes I think of myself as trying to be God's best servant. This time I just thought, eh, I'm just going to relax and be your kid. I'm going to be your son. You said I had the right to become a son of God if I believed on you and received you, and, and I have, and so I, I can just relax. I'm going to take it easy. Not that I'm not doing anything, but I'm going to trust in you and what you want to do. 2 Corinthians 5.19 talks about, encapsulates a little bit this plan of God. It says that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. So it wasn't just that Jesus was compassionate and willing to die and embrace suffering. God himself was compassionate and put together the plan for us to be reconciled with him. And it's a great reconciliation. You know, sometimes when someone forgives you, it's sort of like, will you forgive me? Sure, I'll forgive you because I know I have to. That's not what it was like. It says it said that it was God's great pleasure to give us the kingdom. God delights in people coming into relationship with him. It says about Jesus that who, he, he, for the, the joy, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame. So that when he looked at the cross, he didn't look at it and go, oh, it's all wrong. It's all terrible. It's all awful. No, there was joy in it. I mean, part of it, I think, was obeying the Father. But I think the other part of it was the fact that you and I would come into relationship with God or could come into relationship with God. 
that Jesus saw us. And he saw the great reconciliation that God was working out in the world. Let's go back to our text here, Luke chapter 24. We're going to read to the end. So you are my witnesses of these things. I'm going to send you what my Father has promised. But stay in the city until you've been clothed with power from on high. So you say, well, not just does Jesus become the king in my life. That's not just his plan, but he actually provides the power in our lives through the Holy Spirit for us to walk uh, or, and live for him. And when he led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. And when, while he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. So then they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. Great joy. And they stayed continually at the temple, praising God. So the result of this forgiveness, the result of being a reconciled person to God is great joy. He's risen. He rules. He reigns. The cross is not the end of the story. Doesn't end with death. Ends with life. And not just any old life, but eternal life. Life that goes beyond this, whatever you get, 70, 80, 90 years. Life that is eternal with God. Say, what do you get if you become a follower of Jesus? You get God for eternity. Well, what else is thrown in the gift bag there? No, no, no. (laughs) There's other stuff, but seriously, it pales. It does not compare. You get God. At the end of the day, you get God. You get relationship with your creator, and you get it for eternity. And you get all the joy... It says, in his, in his presence there are joys forevermore. Forevermore. You get God. So he's risen, he rules, he reigns, and the cross is not the end of the story. And the forgiveness offered means I'm no longer separated from God, but united for him, with him for eternity. So what does it look like to live in this forgiven state? Can we give it a, a picture? I want to tell you about, a, I'll tell you a bit of a family story. I know Easter's a family get-together often. How many of you are here with your family when you're not normally with your family? Who's, who's here with family they don't usually see? Okay, isn't that nice? Whoa, it's not, eh? Okay, that's fine. I'll pray for you. Anyhow, I'll tell you, I want to tell you a family story. And this story is not just to tell a story about family. This story is to give you a picture of what it looks like to live this forgiven, reconciled, on mission for God life. So my wife and I had two kids, loved our two kids, and then found out from the doctor we couldn't have any more kids. And we both were from bigger families, and we had planned to have more, fa- more kids. So that was pretty devastating to us. We did, you know, some levels of medical treatments that didn't end up working, and then doctors were puzzled and didn't know what was wrong and said, we don't think you can have any more kids. So, it took us a while to sort of grieve our way through that. And then when we were coming out the other end, we said, well, what about adoption? Maybe we could adopt. So we went to social service, sat down with an adoption worker, worked through all that paperwork. And um, then we didn't really hear. We did a bit of fostering. That was good too. But we didn't really hear from uh, the adoption worker for about five years. Five years later, we got a phone call and said, well, are you ready to adopt? And we're like, oh, it's you again. <laughs> nice to hear from you. Well, we had to ask ourselves, are we still ready to adopt? It's been five years. Lots of changes in five years. But we really realized that we really had room in our hearts for more kids in our lives. And so we said, yeah, we're, we're ready to adopt. So um, that's when uh, 
well, I'm trying to shorten up the story here, but the story goes basically, it was a two and a half year old boy that was available for adoption. And uh, he lived in Saskatoon area. And so they had it all planned out for us, the social workers did. They said, you're gonna come and you're gonna spend three days staying in a hotel in Saskatoon. And every day you go to the house of the foster parents where this little boy lives. And you get to know them and see their parenting style and, and also get to know the little boy, interact with him. And uh, then at the end of the week, they'll bring him and he'll come to live with you. That's how it happens. So like, okay. So Monday, we meet this little boy for the first time and, and uh, meet this family that he's living with and meet uh, the other social worker who's this, the boy's social worker. So it's like two families, the little boy and two social workers all hanging out in one house for three days. I mean, we go back to our hotel at night, but basically for three days. And, you know, the, their social workers are sitting back with their clipboards, you know, sort of, oh, yeah, see, oh, likes children, seems to be able to interact. You know, it's a little bit of a high-pressure situation. But we are, um, we are loving our interaction. We're feeling a little bit of pressure, but we're loving our interaction, and we are loving the home that this little guy's grown up in. Absolutely loving the way they parent. They had four older boys of their own, and they were followers of Jesus, and they had come to a decision in their lives. They said, we really feel that we are called to take foster kids in, provide really stable and awesome home for them as long as we possibly can until the point that they can go to a forever home, and, and, uh, and then we'll say goodbye and give them over to those parents. So we were amazed at this couple and just the, what good work they were doing. You know, they were, their parenting style was very much like ours, but I actually thought we might have to up our game a bit to be like them. They were really great. And uh, it was really cool just to be on this journey together with them. So three days happened. We came back to Moose Jaw. We were there here for a little bit. And then on a Friday, uh, just after Easter last year, they came. Uh, and they brought Jacob with them. So they come into our home, and uh, there's a meal we're going to have together. It's lunch. We've served lunch, two social workers, two couples. Our boys are at school, and, uh, and Jacob. And it's a happy lunch. It's a friendly lunch, but it's a tense lunch because we know what's coming. We all know what's coming. So at the end of lunch, the dad turns towards the mom, and he says... Um, let me back up. I'll get to that in a second. One thing I noticed about the dad, every time we were in his home and we'd eat together, he would often pray. I think his wife prayed too, but he would often pray. And every time I heard him pray, he would have something specific in his prayer. Now, when you pray with other people, what do you usually pray for? Thank you for the food, the people who made it, this great day. Thank you for our family. Those things all might come up in your sort of around the table prayers, right? There was always an extra thing that was in every one of his prayers, and that was, thank you, Father, for sending us Jesus. Every time he prayed, he'd pray, thank you, Father, for sending us Jesus. I mean, not everyone around the table were believers in God, but he, he prayed it every time. Thank you, Father, for sending us Jesus. I th every time he prayed it, I thought, I think that's real for this guy. I think it's so real for him. I think somehow what Jesus did in his life has become really, really real. Maybe he's like me. He's sort of tasted a little bit of his own sinfulness. You know, I, the more I plumb the depths of my heart, the more I discover all sorts of 
deceit and sin and things that I wish wasn't there, but it's there. And, you know, we learn from the Bible that those who have been forgiven much, they love much. That was one of Jesus' uh, teachings that he gave. And those who think they've been forgiven little, which isn't true, because if you've been forgiven by God, you've been forgiven much. But if they think you've been forgiven little, you only love little. Well, I've been thinking, I bet he knows how much God has forgiven him. I bet he's tasted a little bit of the bitterness of his own sin like I have. And so that's probably why there's such appreciation that just comes out when he prays, thank you, Father, for giving us Jesus. So when he was in our home and him and his wife were there, the, the, supper, the lunch was ending and he turned towards his wife and he said, um, do you want to do what we said we'd do in the, in the vehicle? Now, at this point, it was getting too close. She already couldn't talk. She was very emotional, and, and uh, we all knew why. And uh, she couldn't respond, and he said, okay, then I'm making a decision. We're going to do what we said we'd do. So we're like, what are they going to do? So we went to the front door, and they held Jacob, and they said, uh, let's pray. So we sort of all, Marnie and I were right close, and social workers sort of a little bit in the background, and we're all just standing there. And uh, he prayed a prayer, but the opening line of his prayer was this. Father, Father, you also know what it's like to give up your son. When he said that, everybody cried. His wife burst. All the emotions that were in her just came out. Marnie cried, I cried, social workers cried. Don't even know if the social workers knew what the spiritual reference was, but they cried. We all cried. And they finished their prayer, and they hugged Jacob, and they handed him to us, and they left. And then Jacob cried for about five minutes. And then he just settled in with Marnie, and just like God had planned this all along. But we knew that the greatest hurt was going away in that minivan that they were driving away in. We knew that they had invested two and a half years from birth. And they believed, they believed that God had called them to do this. I heard it said that the gospel is always death to the giver and life to the receiver. See, they understood what God had done for them. It had become so real in their lives. They had such joy and such gratitude in who Jesus was and what he had done for them that they then could do things that seem impossible. If you're saying right now, I could never do that, guess what? God can do that. God in you, Jesus in you, the Holy Spirit in you can do that. But we have to get in touch with what he has already done for us. If you want to live with great joy and give extravagantly to the point of great pain, you need to get in touch with 
what Jesus has already done for you. If you want to be a suffering servant who brings joy to others, get in touch with a suffering servant who brought joy to you, whose purpose was to bring joy to you. See, my wife and I didn't deserve Jacob. We didn't deserve all the joy he's brought us. I mean, we, I mean, that next day, I remember we got in, or was it even that day, we put him in the stroller and we, our boys with us, and we walked around the neighborhood like we were 10 feet tall. Like, we have three kids. Not like the rest of you with two kids. Come on, hobby parents. <laughs> we got three kids. I'm just teasing. I'm just teasing. We were the same. Anyhow. We just felt incredible joy and, and thankfulness and gratefulness, and we hadn't earned it. We hadn't done anything to earn it. All we did was receive. At the same time, close to Saskatoon, there was another couple going for a walk and feeling the emptiness and feeling the loss and probably saying to each other, oh, well, we chose this. And remember, we felt God telling us to do this. And he's here to heal us, and he's here to comfort us, and he loves us, and because of what he's done through the cross and his resurrection, we have everything in Christ. And so we can give like this, and we can love like this, and we can lay our lives down. And he's freed us from cycles of selfishness that had us bound like captives. He's made us new. 2 Corinthians 5.15 says, And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. That's God's heart desire for every one of you and for me too. His desire and his design is to free you from captivity to selfishness and sin so that you can live for others and bring life to them and bring joy to them. And you can lay down your life. You can die to yourself and your selfish desires, myself and my selfish desires, because of the work of Jesus on the cross, because of his resurrection. Let me read it again. He died for all, every one of us, that those who live, what's the point of living? Should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Excuse me. Chris Drennan, Pastor Chris Drennan, he, he shared in the fall, he said, if Christ is your treasure, you will love without measure. I love that line. Christ is your treasure, your love without measure. And I believe that's what God's called us to. But before we go there, before we get to that vision of self-sacrificing, giving of ourselves, we have to go through the cross. We have to go there. Because that's where the ball gets rolling. That's where the momentum is established. That's the flywheel of the Christian life. Is understanding how much we need God's forgiveness. And understanding how great his love is for us. 
and understanding that his forgiveness and grace is greater than our sin, no matter how great our sin is. If you're sitting there and you're going, yeah, that's good for good people, that's not good for the things I've done. His forgiveness is greater than your sin. His grace is way larger than anything you've done. And so I pray for you that you, God would give you uh, two matching gifts. One, a revelation of your need for God. And the other one, a revelation of how much God is willing to give himself to you. When you realize that deep cavity, that emptiness, that internal longing that you can fill with all sorts of junk, but it just doesn't fill. And then you realize, wait a second, God demonstrated his love for me on the cross. He made it clear that he wants me in his family. And he has a plan for my life that I will be a witness of this resurrection, of this power of God, this transformation of this way open to God. And as I witness, I will not just witness with my words, but I'll witness with my life. Because my life will mimic the pattern of suffering and laying down my life for others so that they can live. Let's stand together.